Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. All right, all right. I'm try not to get my water sound in the microphone. It's good to see you. This morning, I hope everybody had a good week. Uh, it is a good day to be together. Today is the third Sunday in a series uh, we are ex- where we're exploring what it means to be kingdom people in the world. And today, I wanted to both empty all of my pockets, but also uh, <laughs> uh, talk about what it means to be that kingdom people are good neighbors, that kingdom people our good neighbors. Now, that might sound incredibly obvious to you, right? Like, of course, we're supposed to be good neighbors. We, uh, in the Midwest at least, have general notions of appropriate neighborliness, don't we? We we kind of understand this. I think we Iowans pride ourselves on being better neighbors than people from other um, more disagreeable states like New New York or California or Nebraska. Uh, Sorry. Always got to get it in. And that's good, right? It's good to be neighbor like that. It's good uh, to bring cookies when somebody moves in right next door. It's good to watch your neighbor's home when they go on vacation, right? Uh, Ashley and I have great neighbors. We're lucky on 18th Street. uh, We're lucky to have good neighbors. Recently, we've started letting Elliot go up to the park that's a block and a half north of our house because when you're eight, you need to start spreading your wings and getting a little bit more freedom. And the other day, Elliot asked if he could go up to the park, and we said yes. And our two-year-old, not yet two-year-old son, decided that this would be a great opportunity to slide out through the, through the fence and follow him up to the park. And, and thank God we have good neighbors, right, who got Amos the escape artist and brought him back into our yard. Um, <laughs> uh, it also, when you lose your child like that, you feel, you feel like a tremendous parent, by the way. Uh, It's good to be a good neighbor. You know, our notions of neighborliness and kindness are obviously a good thing, and we should all lean into those. I hope we are all motivated to be good neighbors in that kind of Midwestern sense of the word. But Jesus is teaching here, and I'm sure you picked up on this if you listened, is radical 
in comparison to what comes to mind when we think about what it means to be a good neighbor. It kind of pushes the ball forward a little bit, doesn't it? Most of us thinking, think about being a good neighbor as showing general kindness to people that we generally like. You may even have a neighbor that you're not particularly fond of, but yet you'll show the kind of basic general kindness that is appropriate to show to a neighbor because they're your neighbor and that's the good thing to do. And that is what good people are supposed to do. But you don't have to look long at this parable, do you? To realize that Jesus is teaching about the good Samaritan here is pushing us in this parable towards a way of being in the world, towards a posture in the world that is a bit more uncomfortable than I think we, when we think of our normal, average, neighborly behavior, right? And you see this really clearly. It's, it's actually really, really stark when you begin to jump into the history of what's going on here. When you, when you look specifically at the details of this story, the ways in which Jesus is pushing us towards something other than just kind of general neighborliness becomes quite clear, in fact. The details that Jesus puts in this story are masterful, and they are put there specifically to kind of, well, push our buttons a little bit. And there's no detail more shocking in this story than the fact that Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of the story. I'm sure uh, many of you are familiar with this already, but Jesus, in this parable, makes the Good Samaritan the hero, right? But that, to his audience, would have been a kind of oxymoron, because there was no such thing as a Good Samaritan in their mind. In the Hebrew mind, there was, there was, just, there was no redeemable quality that a Samaritan could have. Just a little bit of history shows us this. Uh, Samaritans were half-breeds. They were uh, forgive my language, literally, I'm using the term literally, they were bastards in a sense. They were Jewish people who intermarried with Assyrians. And they practiced a form of Judaism that was combined with Assyrian cultic religion, but yet they always said that they were more faithful followers of Yahweh than the Jewish people were, which would have obviously made the Jewish people mad, right? Jews believed that Samaritans were a contaminated people. They were contaminated. They were defiled and that they defiled the worship of the one true God. And from time to time, violence broke out between these two groups of people. In the year 128 BC, the Jews went up to Samaria and destroyed their temple on Mount Gerizim. They, they took it apart. And in AD 6, roughly 30 years before Jesus is actually giving this parable of the Good Samaritan, a group of Samaritans snuck into the temple at, at, on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and they spread human bones all over the temple. Now, that sounds bad, right? But that was a defilement of the sacred in the Hebrew mind, right? There was something that violated the very core of their religious identity when the Samaritans did this. It was way worse than what happened a week or two ago that kind of defiled the religious imagination of people in America, the Christian imagination of some people in America, did you, were any of you familiar with what the rapper Little Nas X did with his Satan shoes? I don't know, right? Are you familiar with this? Uh, there's a rapper, his name's Little Nas X. He released a limited edition red and black shoe that had pentagrams on the tongue of the shoe and apparently had real human blood injected into them somewhere. It was a publicity stunt, right? It was a publicity stunt. Uh, but it was intentionally, 
uh, it was a publicity stunt that, that's intention was to provoke, right? To create that sense in, in your gut of that something is wrong, to create a reaction. And a lot of Christians, understandably, were mad because they believed that there was a kind of defilement that took place there. Something sacred had been trespassed, it had been crossed over. It was offensive because there was something about making a shoe that promotes Satan that was seen to intentionally mock Christianity, right? Or, the, or followers of Jesus. And if you make fun or take lightly or possibly even desecrate something that people hold as sacred or special or set apart, they're going to be mad, right? There's going to be this natural human reaction that occurs. There's going to be an emotional response that occurs when that uh, when that line is crossed, when that thing that's meant to be sacred or special is treated like it's not sacred and special. Now, creating a Satan shoe is a dumb publicity stunt, right? It's just a dumb thing that artists do to try to get more clicks online. It's the kind of thing that people do all of the time, right? They just do kind of provocative things in order to stir up emotion. But spreading human bones in the temple... That would have been much worse than a Satan shoe. It was so bad, in fact, uh, it was such a violation of the Hebrew religious mind that the Hebrew people went to a guy, a guy named Pontius Pilate, maybe you're familiar with him, who was the prefect over this area, and they got him to go up to Samaria and commit a massacre of Samaritan people on Mount Gerizim, on their holy place. So you put human bones in the temple? We are literally going to spill your own blood in your, on your holy mountain. This is intense stuff, right? Talk about an escalation here. These Jews were not following the Torah that said eye for an eye at all, right? They were provoked by this sense of religious violation, and they went off. But this is the type of violence that naturally occurs when we feel something holy or something sacred, something set apart has been violated, isn't it? We, we all feel that kind of natural thing when something has been violated in our religious imagination. We might not take it that far, at least I hope we don't take it that far, but we know that feeling, what it means to be provoked, don't we? And in this way, the story of the Good Samaritan is absolutely shocking, isn't it? What if, it, it would be like it would be like a, ver a worse version of if Jesus had put little Nas X in as the Good Samaritan, right? Or a member of the Taliban or something like that. This is the story that Jesus is telling. This is the story that Jesus is telling. And what makes it even more incredible, as if we needed it to be any more incredible, is that Jesus tells this story in response to a question from the teacher of the law who has just quoted the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. If you don't know what the Shema is, it's like the Pledge of Allegiance for the Hebrew people. It was their primary confession of faith. It was the creed that they lived their lives by. So we are talking about big stuff here in this parable, aren't we? We're talking about eternal life. We're talking about the Shema. We're talking about love of God and love of neighbor. This is some huge stuff. And Jesus intentionally and this is important to remember. Jesus intentionally chooses a literally scandalous story in order to arouse something in his audience. He's actually trying to elicit that emotion that maybe you felt just a little tiny bit when you saw the Satan shoe, right? 
He's actually trying to call that out of them in some way, which is very extreme, isn't it? It's very extreme. And he does this in order to get his point across. But the question is why, right? Why does Jesus feel the need to give what really is a scandalous story? Why does he feel the need to to prick that part of the minds of his audience and the minds of the readers of the story in such a way as to bring that feeling to the surface, that feeling that as though something has been transgressed, something that's not quite right is going on here, that kind of odd-footedness that occurs when you read this parable. Why does Jesus tell the story that way? Because Jesus could have told the story where the Jewish person was the good guy, right? Where the Jewish person was the hero and make the Samaritan the one that needed help. It would still be a challenging story, wouldn't it? You know, he could have made the point just as well that if if you see your enemy in the ditch, you need to care for your enemy in the ditch, right? It would still have been challenging for Jesus to say, love your neighbors and love the people that dislike you and love the people that you hate, right? That's still challenging. But I think Jesus tells the parable the way that he does because he wants to challenge something inside of us and inside of his audience. I honestly think he wants to challenge that feeling of disgust or disdain or moral outrage that his audience would have naturally had at the idea of a Samaritan being the good guy. And I think he wants to challenge that feeling because it is often a natural barrier in our lives, that feeling, to loving someone, isn't it? It's really, really hard to love someone who elicits that feeling in you, right? That feeling of conflict, that feeling of disdain, that feeling of disgust, that feeling that that person has crossed a line that they shouldn't have crossed and now they're bad. It's incredibly difficult to love someone, to be a good neighbor to someone who you feel that way about. And Jesus is putting his finger right there, isn't he? You know, this feeling occurs in our hearts and our minds sometimes about other people, doesn't it? A few years ago, I was, uh, went to California on a trip, and we drove, and as we kind of drove around California, because you've got to drive everywhere and sit quietly in traffic everywhere you go. It's horrible. Everybody should choose to live in Iowa. Uh, anyways, yeah, Amen. As I drove around, I saw a level of homelessness that I had not seen before in my life. Uh, I have volunteered at homeless shelters. I've had interactions with people. I've had conversations with people who didn't have a home, who lived on the street. Uh, It wasn't that I hadn't been around that. It was just that the sheer amount of people living in tents and under bridges was incredibly disturbing to me. It was just really, really disturbing. It threw me off. There was something emotionally in my heart that was happening. And as I began to interrogate that feeling, I came to the realization that the feeling I was having was not compassion. The feeling I was having was a mix of fear and disgust. That's what I was feeling. I wanted to get away from those people in that situation. I wanted to avoid it. I wanted to like drive the furthest way around town. You see, those feelings we have are often put in place to keep us separate from people, aren't they? That feeling of disgust, that fear that someone might contaminate you. What does it do? It separates us from people, right? 
But there is just something about Jesus, isn't there? Either he didn't have those feelings, or he didn't let them control his behavior. But he was always drawing close to the kinds of people that everyone else wanted to naturally kind of push away, wasn't he? And this is why he is literally accused of sin often in the Gospels. Because when Jesus intentionally crosses some of those kind, and you know these lines, right? Some of those invisible lines that culture and religion build, he is seen by some in the Jewish establishment as causing a scandal, right? It's a scandal to touch a leprous man. It's a scandal to eat with tax collectors and sinners. It's a religious defilement, actually, and it caused many in the crowds to call into question the validity of Jesus' ministry. Because how could a good or godly man, how could the Messiah do this? How could he defile himself in this way? It set off alarm bells in their religious minds. And yet he keeps pushing on this issue throughout the whole of his ministry. And you see it. After you see it, you can't unsee it. He's always pushing on this particular button in his ministry. He keeps working to dismantle these notions of religious purity that keep people separate. You know, this is what he, functionally, what he says to the Pharisees when he says, outside you look righteous, but inside you're whitewashed tombs. This is the same thing he meant when he says, uh, go and see what this means. I desire mercy more than sacrifice, right? He's attempting to dismantle some of these, this religious scaffolding that has been built up around Judaism that actually keeps people away from God rather than inviting them near to the love of God that keep the poor and the sick and the broken at arm's length. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but a leprous person in this day, when they, if they walked through town, had to cry out that they were a leper so that people could see and know and get as far away as possible. You see, we have these religious compulsions in our hearts, right? We have these senses of defilement. We, We believe that there are some sins that make people too broken, too dangerous to be in our presence. And so we push them away. And I think Jesus expressly communicates to us in this parable that religion, and I'm using religion in the negative sense of the term today, religion naturally creates some of these impulses in us. And the reason I think Jesus points this out is because in verses 31 through 32, who does Jesus say missed the point in the story? It's the religious leaders, right? Beginning in verse 31, he says, A priest happens to be going down the road, and when he saw a man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The priest and the Levite choose not to help the man who'd been beat up and robbed. We know that it's possible that for both of these men, maintaining religious or ritual purity, which is something we don't necessarily understand in our context, but was a very important thing to them, it would have been very, very important to them in order to carry out their religious functions, in order to be in society what they were called to be, in order to do their jobs. If they had gone down into this ditch on the other side of the road and they had touched the man and the man happened to be dead and the the text tells us that he looked like he was dead, right? 
If he happened to be dead, well, then they would not have been able to carry out their religious responsibilities. Specifically for the priest, he would not have been able to carry out his duties in the sacrificial system, in the temple itself. And so for the sake of their religious duties, to maintain proper order, to maintain purity, to remain untainted, the men pass by. Because in their mind, right, in their religious mind, remaining untainted, remaining pure was more important than showing mercy. You see, I can't help but see this part of Jesus' parable as a kind of indictment of the ways in which we use religion to keep people away from us. Did any of you read the Scarlet Letter in high school? Anybody? Right? A couple of you. Nathaniel Hawthorne's story is obviously a very extreme version of this, but he tells the story of a young woman in Puritan Boston named Hester, and she conceived a child out of wedlock, and as punishment for her sin, she is required to stand in front of a crowd, and she's publicly humiliated for three hours, and then she's forced to wear a scarlet A for the rest of her life. She's singled out. She's separate, right? She's separated from the rest of society because of her ungodly behavior. I think that Hawthorne was trying to put his finger on this same thing with his story, that there's a kind of natural religious impulse that we all have to exclude those we feel are sinful, unholy, or defiled, to kind of move them over to the side and keep them away. In order to protect ourselves from contamination or defilement, we push away those we view as broken or sinful. And when this impulse is at its worst, we use things like guilt, shame, and anger to single those people out and cause them to feel like they are less than or not worthy of the same respect or love that other people are worthy of. Because, you know, we're all perfect over here, and you're not. And many of us, if we have spent any time in church, have either transgressed one of these lines, and you know what I'm talking about, right? We've either transgressed one of these lines ourselves, or we know someone who has. And we know what it feels like, don't we? I'm sure for those of you in this place who know what that feeling, who know what that feeling is like, right? This is when, and I will just say this, when a church is functioning this way is when a church is at its worst. When it becomes a place full of morally upright people attempting to maintain a spirit of moral uprightness by drawing really bright lines and excluding everyone who doesn't meet the standard, right? This is when a church is at its worst. This is the exact kind of religious impulse that Jesus is trying to root out of his audience by telling this shocking parable. When the roles of the good guy and bad guy are flipped on their head in order to point something out. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus intentionally scandalizes his audience in order to disabuse them of their closely held false religious impulses, impulses to keep themselves separate from other people because of religious conviction. For Jesus, religious walls of separation must come down in order to create space for loving fellowship and acts of service that give even our most ardent enemies and our most severe sinners dignity and communicate love to them. 
And here's how I kind of sum all of this up. Kingdom people are those who cross religious, cultural, or political boundaries in order to manifest the love of God in unexpected and often scandalous ways. This is what kingdom of God people do. And again, Jesus models this for us, doesn't he? He models it all over the place. He lets a woman dry his feet with her hair, which in that context is bonkers. He sits alone with an unmarried Samaritan woman at a well. He performs miracles on the Sabbath, which to us is no big deal, but to them was a big deal. Jesus crosses religious, cultural, political boundaries in scandalous ways to communicate that the love of God is for those people. And we should be also. You see, I think that Jesus shows us that our impulse to pull away from broken, sinful, hurting people is actually the exact opposite of God's impulse. You see, for us, another person's sin makes us recoil or pull away. And I'm not saying that I don't have that same feeling, right? But we all know that feeling. But Jesus, Jesus shows us explicitly that it is our brokenness that actually motivates and brings God close. And you might be saying, Nick, how is this possible? God is holy and, you know, he wants to keep us at arm's length. <laughs> I don't think that's the story of the Bible, actually. God is holy, but I don't think that's the story of the scriptures. Jesus shows us explicitly that it is our brokenness that motivates and brings God near to us. All you really need to do is look at the incarnation. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, drew close to us in the incarnation when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were as bad as it gets. And it's like God saw us in our sin and our guilt and our brokenness. He saw us like kind of drug addicts in the gutter and said, I better go be with them, right? This is the story of the incarnation. Yes, God is holy. Yes, sin is bad. But the love of God is most powerfully displayed, not in our ability to separate from sin, but our ability to sit in with people in their sin, in solidarity with them, communicating the love of God. God's self-sacrifice, his self-sacrificial love, is more clearly demonstrated in his willingness to be close to those who are broken than any other thing. This is what the cross is all about, right? And yet the church gets this confused and backwards all of the time. We think that in order to be holy, we need to be totally separate. We need to get offended when people sin. We need to try to defend God if somebody insults him, like that does any good, or like he needs our help. Right? We think holiness is about staying away from those things that transgress our religious standards or sensibilities. Yet in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus blows up that paradigm. Kingdom people are called to be like our king, like King Jesus, and cross religious, cultural, and political barriers. I'll say it five more times, in order to manifest the love of God in unexpected and scandalous ways. This is what it means to be a good neighbor, right? That, 
as much as I love your cookies and keep them coming, seriously, this is what it means to be a good neighbor. And so with that in mind, for the rest of our time this morning, I just want to talk practically about how this might work itself out in our lives. So first, the kingdom of this world is always striving to build walls that separate. The kingdom of God is always working to bring down barriers and walls of hostility. All right? It seems like we, in our culture, are addicted to building walls, doesn't it? We're addicted to picking teams, choosing sides. It's like we're still on the kickball court in third grade. Is kickball played on a court? It seems like we always chop people up into the good guys and the bad guys. Part of the reason Jesus flips the good guy and the bad guy in this story is precisely to challenge that idea. We are always trying to pick sides. We always want to know if we're, who's team blue and who's team red. Christians are called to be people in all of the world that actively resist the name-calling, the labels, and the wall-building as a fundamental piece of our identity, as core to our central as our central identity as kingdom people in the world. So there are people who don't think the same as you in the world. So what? Right? You're trying to get the world to conform to the way you think? Good luck, right? Have any of you tried that with, I don't know, your spouse, one of your children? It doesn't work, right? So what if people don't think the same way as you? That's not your calling, right? That's not what you're supposed to do with your life, to get people to think the same as you. God does not, this might be a controversial statement, God does not call us to make society perfect. He calls us to be kingdom people in the midst of a broken society and to witness to, to share the good news of Jesus in the midst of a broken world. Now, will that improve the world? Yes. And can we bring our opinions to bear on the world? Yes. And should we be for the flourishing of all peoples? Yes, yes, and yes. But your job is not to fix the world. And if and the world wants you to believe that the way in which you fix the world is get on a side and then work really hard for whatever that side thinks is the right thing to do. And kingdom of God people cut right through the middle of all of that junk. They really do articulating a way of being in the world that doesn't fit neatly in, into any political or ideological camp. You shouldn't be fighting the culture war. You shouldn't be. We should be working to the best of our ability to be good neighbors to anyone and everyone who crosses our path. We should not make being against anyone or anything a central part of our identity. Instead, we are to be like Jesus and to be for everyone. Again, this does not mean you can't have opinions about the way that the, the, the kingdoms of this world function. That's okay. You can have an opinion. We're just not supposed to invest all of our time and energy there. We're, we're called to spend our time and our energy act, uh, working to actively love through our thoughts and actions. Now, this is really, really hard work. It takes imagination, and honestly, I believe that it's impossible without the Spirit of God. This is what Ephesians 2, if you want to go read Ephesians 2 after this, because, you know, we all like to go read our Bibles after church, uh, not eat lunch. Uh, this is what Ephesians 2 is all about, right? 
It's God's empowering presence flowing through his people that gives us the power to lay down our lives for other people and to serve even those people who are off-putting to us, to love and to draw up close to, to communicate the love of God, to witness to the reality of a God that loves even the most despicable or despised people in our world, and to be emissaries of that message, to break down walls and divisions, to love like Jesus loved. So that's one. Here's the second practical implication for this morning. If you find yourself in a Christian bubble, you must take active steps to pop it. There is this thing that happens when you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, where it starts to become obvious that you don't know very many people any longer who aren't Christians like you. That's a natural thing. I'm not getting on anybody's case. Now, it's vitally important to cultivate Christian community. None of us follow Jesus alone. That's a commandment from Scripture that we be part of a people, right? We've been talking about being a kingdom people. We talked about that last week. We say that all the time here. But sometimes we construct bubbles, and we, I don't even think we know that we're doing it. We construct bubbles in order to make ourselves feel safe or insulated from an outside world that we feel is dangerous to us. So we insulate ourselves. And we, we use Christianity to do that. You know, we only watch Christian TV, and we only hang out with Christians, and we only watch Christian movies, and we only buy things at the Christian bookstore as if those exist anymore. And we, you know, we do all of that stuff, and we insulate ourselves. But here's the problem. Christianity was never safe. Following Jesus is never safe. They killed him. The love of God is never safe. It's wild and untamed. And if you are filled up with that love, you will inevitably find yourselves unexpectedly drawn to people who need it most. If you look at your life and that you find you are living one of those nice Christian existences with no interruptions, no, no intrusions, no messiness, that might be a sign that God is calling you to pop your Christian bubble. And here is how I think you should do it. Do you want a suggestion for how I think you should do that if you find yourself in one? I'm a pastor, and so we're the worst at this, right? I, like, I'm not being hard on you. Like, pastors are the worst at this. What if your job was only to hang out with Christians? It would be, you know, like, it'd be hard to not hang out with Christians, right? So here's how you do it. Uh, practice hospitality. It's always going to come back to eating, frankly. This is something the early church did, right? And, uh, that, and this practice ensured that they stayed in vital connection with those who needed the love of God most. Uh, there is a theologian and historian, her name's Christine Pohl, who says it this way. She says, hospitality to needy strangers distinguished the early church from its surrounding environment. Uh, noted, noted as exceptional by Christians and non-Christians alike, offering care to strangers became one of the dis, uh, distinguishing marks of the auth authenticity of the Christian gospel and of the church. Writing from the first five centuries demonstrate the importance of hospitality in defining the church as a universal community and denying the significance of the status boundaries and distinctions of the larger society. It in recognizing the value of every person in providing practical care for the poor, for strangers, and for the sick. 
You see, our lives need to be broad enough and loving enough to be open to everyone, regardless of how we might feel about them. How might God be calling you to show hospitality? What wall exists in your spheres of influence that need to come down so that you can display the love of God and be a good neighbor? How can you draw close to people that don't know Jesus or draw close to people that the rest of the world want to turn a blind eye to? This is the motivation of kingdom love. It's what it means to be a good neighbor. And finally this morning, and Joss, you can come up real quick. Final thing I have to say this morning is when you feel repulsed by something or someone, ask the Holy Spirit if what you're feeling is an invitation to love your neighbor. Have you ever thought about this? We've all felt repulsed by something or someone, right? We've all seen something in someone that was repulsive to us, and we've thought, i got to run from this. But Jesus makes quite clear in the Gospels. It's not what goes into a man or woman that defiles them. It's what comes out. Our proximity to that which we're, we're scared of, that, that which we're repulsed by, cannot contaminate us. This is what Jesus is constantly doing. The defiled things don't make Jesus unholy. Jesus makes the defiled things holy. And so Jesus' people, kingdom people, ought to be the type of people who move in our world loving those people who everyone else tries to separate from. And Jesus doesn't want you to be repulsed by people. I think it's universally true. Jesus doesn't want you to be repulsed by anyone or any, anyone, right? There are behaviors that are destructive to the human soul. And I'm not saying we turned a blind eye to those. But can you see past a destructive behavior to the heart of a person that God loves? Because here's the truth. The only way a broken and hurting world is going to know that God loves us, loves them, is if we love them like God loves them. The only way a broken and hurting person is going to realize that they are enveloped in the loving arms of God as if they're in enveloped in the loving arms of God's people. And so often the religious impulse of the church to kind of shame and guilt people who have sinned in one way or another is the exact opposite impulse of a kingdom people who are called to display the love of God to the world. And so when you're repulsed by something or someone, it might be a very good sign that the Holy Spirit is asking you to love that person. Shocking, isn't it? Because it's counterintuitive to the way we think and the way we feel. But it's not counterintuitive to the gospel. And it is not in any way, shape, or form counterintuitive to the way that Jesus lived his life when he was on the earth. And we want to live like Jesus, don't we? Would you stand with me this morning?
So, this is one of those messages that you may need to interrogate on your own a little bit, right? To ask yourself, like, who am I repulsed by? Like, is it, like, left-leaning, critical race theory embracing, right, Democrat voters? Is it alt-right nationalists, right? Is it, is it Donald Trump? Is it, I don't know. Well, who is it? We might need to interrogate that feeling a little bit and ask the Holy Spirit if maybe, just maybe, our calling, because of the way we feel, is to love those people <laughs> rather than spinning and spending all our time thinking about how horrible they are and how, how the world's going to in a handbasket because of them, Right? I'm convinced, I'm convinced that this is the most distinctive thing that kingdom people do in the world. Because there is no other impulse to do this if you're not a kingdom Jesus person. There isn't. Why would, why would you need to communicate that everyone, that God loves everybody? If you didn't be, don't believe that God does love everybody, right? Why, why, do you need to, why, do you, why do you need to communicate care and value to somebody if they're against you and they're the enemy and they are, they're ruining everything. The story of Jesus and the story of the gospel and the story of the New Testament is that kingdom of God people live on a different plane, right? And that we are called to love where no one else loves, to draw near to people that no one else wants to draw near to and to be actively involved in tearing down the barriers that exist between ourselves and other people and between other people and other people. In short, we're called to be people of peace in a fractious world. And so I want to pray for you today that God would help you to be that. So would you join me as we pray? Father, we love you. And we know that this is really hard and it's counterintuitive. It runs, it runs counter to our default settings. It runs counter to basically everything we watch on TV. It runs counter to every, um, it runs counter to every cable news channel, regardless of affiliation. It runs counter to the ways of this world. And Jesus, we want to be kingdom people, not ways of this world people. <laughs> And so we pray that you would help us to run counter to that impulse to push people away. We pray that you would give us the courage and the power by the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts to love those who under normal circumstances we would be repulsed by. To move towards those who need to know about the love of God the most. And to never, ever, ever be people whose primary identity is building walls that separate. Rather, who find our primary identity in being those who communicate the goodness and love of God to everyone. 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 And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. And amen. Before we go, I was listening to uh, a talk this week by uh, a gentleman who runs an organization for gang members in central LA, I think. Uh, it's called Homeboy Industries, which is kind of funny. He's a, he's a Catholic priest. But he was giving a talk where he said, he asked his audience to do this thing. He said, 
imagine a circle of inclusion. And then imagine no one standing outside of it. That's, what, that's how God asks us to love. Imagine a circle of inclusion and not a single human, and this is scary, not a single human being who's ever existed, not Hitler, not Paul Pot, right? Not whoever you don't like, standing outside the circle of that love. It's bonkers. But we're called to love indiscriminately in that way. We are not the judge and jury. We are the lovers. We are the kingdom of God people. And we go today out into this world as kingdom of God people, learning to love and be good neighbors. Amen? Amen. So you can go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you.